Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast, Asia Matters. My name is Graham Brown. Joining me in the virtual Asia Tech Podcast studio is Andrea Miles, the China geek. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's excellent to have you here because, well, the subject of our conversation, we are going to talk about everything that you need to know about China, Asia, and also talking to the China curious out there, people who are sort of dipping their toe in the water. There's a lot of people outside of Asia as well. So it's an area which you can't ignore. It's an area which is increasingly in the news. And it's an area that, you know, there's a lot of, well, I don't say misunderstanding, but a lot of people are, as I said, are curious about this subject area. So they want to know more. So you're going to help us unpack China and everything that we need to know about it. So Andrew, where yeah, do we start? You bet. Let's do it. How did, how did you earn that moniker of China geek? Did that start at school or what? Is that something that you've elected for yourself? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's completely self-titled. Um, so I, my China geek story starts in 2002 when, um, as a, a country kid from New South Wales, um, I realized that the world was a much bigger place than, um, you know, just the, the, the experiences that I had had. And I packed myself off to China for the first time ever overseas mm. and I backpacked across for three months, um, went from Beijing all the way to Kashgar um, by train and you know, by the time I touched that Pakistan border, I realized, oh, my God, I'm in love with China. Jeez, what do I do now? How old were you at the time? I was 23 then. Right. Had you been outside yeah. of Australia? Never. No, right. I'd barely been outside of the state. So, you know, I thought I was going to get one shot in my whole life at going overseas because no one in my family had ever been overseas. I mean, my parents still don't have passports, right? Like, we're like country right. folk. Yeah. So, um, obviously, over the past 15 years, you know, I've got a passport filled with China visas and... Um, you know, the, the whole world has changed and it's become far more globalized since then. But um, yeah, no, it was a, a, pretty, a pretty great place to, to fall in love with at that particular time. Mm. So how did that happen? Because I, my, my impression of Australia, and obviously I spent quite a bit of time in Australia, I have a lot of Australian friends, oh, cool. is that they, they're quite worldly. You know, they tend to travel. Like the Kiwis, they're always out there. You know, you, they're in every city in the world. And obviously, they're, yes. they're often running the city in the world, whether it's like, you know, waiting in the bars or, you know, working the offices. It's always a lot of young Australians or Kiwis. So I, I get the impression yeah, yeah, that they no, travel. But you said you were from the countryside. So what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, we do. But I mean, I think um, you can really divide that into people who, you know, stay within a hundred kilometre radius of, you know, where, where they grew up. And then those who just, you know, um, get the F out, you know, we just yeah. like leave the island and, you know, do populate all four corners of the world. So, um, yeah, no, there's there's obviously Australians everywhere. And when there's a working holiday visa opportunity, Australians generally tend to, tend to snap that up. They're there. Exactly. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. You spent three months backpacking in, across China. And um, yeah. did you speak any Mandarin before you went? God, no. No, I'd never. I mean, you know, if you think about my China exposure, it was a country town where, you know, the most exotic food was lemon chicken. Like, <laughs> you know, I didn't have any, I did not have any kind of um, international experience, China chops, no China language, no nothing. I was opening my Lonely Planet phrase book on, right. the, on the flight over going, ni heyo, 
awesome, I've got this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really, really green, um, but, you know, very wide-eyed and China curious. So, yeah. you know, it was. It ended up being um, a, a trip of a lifetime. And, uh, you know, subsequent to that, I've got two master's degrees in Chinese in Mandarin mm. um, that I that I did in China. So, um, you know, I, I really kind of ran like a bull at a gate to it because, you know, when you're passionate about something, I just found that I could be so much more productive. You yeah. know, I got such high marks in, in those masters degrees and my my prior degree to that was neuroscience and you know like I, I just you know I skidded through that with the most minimal amount of interest and the last thing you want is a, a disinterested neuroscientist right so yeah. <laughs> I realized I had, I had I had to get out you know I had to actually get more data you know in my in my uh, toolkit to be able to kind of you know just make decisions in my life and you know as it as it happens I ended up picking a, a country that really suits my temperament well let's start with the the numbers as a numbers person, I'm sure you appreciate and let's do it. Let's do language as well. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then maybe you can talk about, you know, what it is that you do on, you know, what is your day job, so to speak, in, in sort of connecting mm. these worlds with Asia, China, with the rest of the world. So I've sure. got some data here, which is from the Modern Language Association of America. And yep. th I don't, this is not particularly indicative of America. So uh, it's not America bashing because obviously, you know, it, it's just that it's, that's where the data is coming from. Right. And it basically what it does is it they poll the number of enrollments in uh, United States higher education. So that would be, you know, uh, college university up. Right. So how many of these students are studying foreign languages? And it maps out the, mm -hmm. the data longitudinally. So you can see what the trends are. You see what the changes are. Right. And uh, so to the listeners, Andrea doesn't have access to this data, so she's just going to have to go on my trust. And I'm kind I'm winging of winging it. Winging it. I'm <laughs> ambushing her, right? I'm ambushing her, right? So this is what we, we, ha we haven't prepared this, right? So here's the data. Here's the interesting point, right? Is that number one language in the US for students is not, not talking about what they speak, but what they're studying. The number one language is mm -hmm. Spanish, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. Because of their, you know, their geographical connections yeah. and so on. Number two is French. Interestingly, like they're still hanging in there with the French, even though that's going down over year over year, right? But what's yeah. in here's what's interesting is like you go right down the list and Chinese, so that would be all forms of Chinese, but mostly Mandarin, I guess, is, is seventh, mm. right? And yeah. okay, it's fine. I understand why people might not choose Chinese, but here's the interesting data point here is that actually, after I think seven or eight years of increasing. Chinese, you know, the number of students studying Chinese. Mm. Since 2016, it's gone down. So what's happening in it is in America, students are not studying Chinese like they used to. The numbers are actually going down. And actually now more students study Italian than Chinese. Explain what's going on, Andrea, because that to me doesn't mm. sound right. Yeah, well, um, I, I can tell you what's going on in Australia. So we, we have a, a similar mirrored pattern over here where um, for uh, those who are graduating high school, more students are studying Latin than they are Mandarin. Latin. And um, yes, so, you know, if you want to kick around ancient Rome for a while, um, you will be set. So when it comes to that, I think uh, historical legacy is is part of it. So we have a shortage of um, teachers qualified to actually teach Mandarin here in Australia. Mm. So, um, you know, we just we, we've got far more 
um, teachers who are able to to teach Japanese than than are qualified to teach Mandarin. So, mm. and that's obviously you know based on teachers needing to upskill quite considerably um, when it comes to that, whether it's you know being able to speak the language and then getting the teacher qualification or or vice versa. Um, and so, what ends up happening is that there's a lag. So that little dip um, from 2016. I mean, listen, I think we could you know pretty easily. Um, match that with the the trend of protectionism, you know, mm. in the United States. I would say, you know, I wouldn't be too surprised if it was a similar sort of case um, in the UK. Um, I would be surprised if it had gone down in Australia, though. Um, you know, Australia. You know, we do have a, a very high proportion of our population um, is uh, either you know migrated from China or is um, mm. of Chinese background. And so in the city that I'm sitting in right now, Sydney, um, 10% of our population have Chinese background. Um, and 54% are actually um, born outside yeah. of Australia. So, you know, when it comes to these sorts of things, I think, you know, we can just sort of wildly say, you know, it's it's because of, a you know, a trade war or, you know, mm. it's because of Trump or, or, you know, these sorts of things. But I also think there's some um, systemic things in play um, as well with, you know, the just the propensity of the education system to um, catch up to, um, you know, what what hopefully will be an increasing demand, even if it does dip. Mm. I hope that it's just a, a small dip over time. Yeah, Okay, so we talk about systemic issues and we look at, for example, students coming through now and those that are China curious, to, to use that term again, those people who kind of yeah. understand that, okay, I need to have a piece of the action. I need to kind of have my you know, hand in the game of Asia and China, whatever that is. And maybe they don't have the master plan. They just kind of know that they need some experience, whether that means getting the backpack on like you or actually studying at a university, when they yeah. actually go to university, what, are the universities prepared for that? I mean, are they sort of, you know, nurturing that talent correctly in the right way? I mean, because I'm not sort of looking at it from that angle. I'm, I'm sort of in the startup scene. But I'm just curious because you mm, spent quite mm, a bit mm, of time mm. there and you've gone through higher education yourself as well. Did, that, you, did your interest in China start as a result of going to through education, or was it something that happened outside of it? I'm just wondering where that sort of seed gets planted in these young people's minds. Yeah, yeah. No, my, um, you know, my, my wish to to be able to speak Chinese really started in, you know, terrible Beijing punk clubs oh, right. <laughs> in, in the oh, turn like of the millennium, of you know. Where, yeah, where I was, you know, just seeing a great mix of people and I could see people who um, weren't of Chinese background like myself just being able to just, you know, riff and have a great conversation with people who were clearly absolutely fascinating. And, mm. you know, that was, that was my downfall because I didn't have that language yet and so you know it was very much motivated from a practitioner standpoint what can I do with this tool I think in universities we miss that you know mm. like it's it's a, a university is an academic institution often they're they're you know criticized for not being practical enough and honestly some of the textbooks that you get when you're studying Mandarin are the most boring thing on the planet compared to what it's like to actually use that tool in China, you know, we're talking about, you know, here's a chapter on at the post office and here's mm -hmm. a chapter on at the airport. It's just like, it's just maddening when you think, you know, I can't use that to sit down and grill somebody about the music that they like or, you know, their, their you know, their grandma's history or, you know, any of that sort of stuff. So, um, 
yeah, my my approach to it is that if we did find um, more of a blend between um, Chinese international students who are studying, you know, everywhere globally, you know, particularly in Australia, you know, we have um, the, the lion's share of international students coming to Australia are Chinese. Yeah. Um, you know, if we could actually uh, find ways where local students and international students really connected together fundamentally, I think we'd see um, less students dropping out of Mandarin classes um, and hopefully international students having a, a better time when they're when they're studying with us. Take them to those Beijing punk clubs. That seems to be like... Yeah. That's where the connection's going to happen. I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by this. I mean, we, we can't sort of... We can't let that one escape. That, that sort of <laughs> scene being, you know... A lot of listeners won't even know there's there are such a thing as Beijing punk clubs, right? There is a scene oh because gosh. you know our image of China is is, is quite uniform, quite you know, uh, well I wouldn't say conformist, but you know we there's a very much a, a curated grey skies in, and red flats exactly, you know? and yeah, you know if we yeah. go back a, a generation, it's people in the blue uniforms and the blue hats and so on, right? Beijing punk clubs, what's going on there? What kind of scene is that? Well, um, Beijing punk would be characterised by actually a lot of middle-class kids, um, you know, really expressing themselves. So, um, you know, it, it can't be underestimated how how risky um, it can be to go against the grain in a, a culture of conformity like China. And yes, that does still exist, but it's not the only culture um, in China, of course. So, you know, to step out and say to your mum, you know, I'm going to be a musician or, you know, I'm just going to you know, go off the rails for a few years, don't worry about me, mm. um, you know, is is far more of a big deal. So um, I think punk in China um, feels more like, say, punk in the West in the 70s than punk in the West right now, mm. you know, where it's largely about massive album sales and, you know, like it's not that – you don't really take a risk if you're becoming a punk in, in Australia, you know, in 2018. Mm, mm. Um, but in China you certainly do. But, you know, I guess – Punks in China would, would criticise the, the Beijing punk scene for being a little too middle class um, and say that the real punks are down in Wuhan. <laughs> <laughs> they all sold out up north, right? Okay. Mm, 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 mm. So it's a genuine punk scene. Like, I mean, does it have that kind of, you know, like that grassroots? If you go back to the 70s where it was all kind of like that DIY style fashion and, it, you know, everybody was selling up their own record labels and... You know, it was kind of yeah, like rebellious for the sake of being rebellious in a sense. I mean, I could never imagine that being a Chinese thing. But then this is the point of having these interviews is that you're constantly challenged by the realities, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, I would say most things um, that you could poke a stick at, you will find in China somewhere. You know, it's just so big and it's just so diverse and it's, it's most certainly not a monolith. Um, I do think that punk in China kind of takes a lot of cues um, from the West, even mm. even still. Um, but as with anything in, in modern day China, you know, there's there's a massive economic upswing. So, you know, you see punk clubs coming up, you see tattoo shops popping up next to that. And then there's, you know, a, a guitar shop down the road. And, you know, like there's, there's, it's not difficult to create an industry around a niche in mm. China. You've just got the scale and you've got the momentum. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how is it when you talk to people in Australia about your experience, like, for example talking about Beijing punk clubs or this middle class or, you know, everything from the, the grassroots subcultures to what's going on in the streets, in retail and so on. And, and the speed mm. at which things are happening is that you spend a lot of time 
expressing you know trying to interpret that for a lot of people as well and to help them understand it and put it into a box and you know trying to put this into context when you talk to people not just in australia but in the west if i can use that those terms like quote unquote is yeah. that what what are the common reactions that people have to what you talk about uh mo- mostly the reaction is oh wow i didn't know that right you know by, by and large so um i think yeah i mean i i I do find China endlessly fascinating um, and often the things that I do find myself speaking about, you know, it's not the usual, um, you know, the, the the beaten path sort of stuff, you know, it's it's maybe it's Beijing punk or, you know, maybe it's, it's the rise of Chinese millennials and what their consumer habits and tastes are, which are just so many and varied. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not difficult to find, you know, a big China statistic um, to make people's eyes, you know, Either, either just simply widen or even light up, you know, like Chinese millennials are sort of the, um, the demographic that I spend most of my time mm. thinking about. And, you know, that's a group of 415 million strong. And if it were a nation unto itself, it's the world's third largest and number one most digitally engaged so, you know, when, when we're thinking about these types of demographics and these these groups and their impact on the world, um, it's hard not to, you know, be be surprised by these things, given that we're just at that tipping point where it doesn't, we don't yet feel the direct impact on our everyday lives in the West, but we're about to, you know, mm. next 10 years, um, I think we'll, we'll see some pretty rapid changes. Yeah, we're starting to see spots, aren't we? We're starting to see these sort of what, if you're an observer, you're starting to see random events happening around the world, which are kind of in isolation appear just as random events. But there's this mm. different pattern emerging, which is like if you sort of step back and start joining the dots, you see something happening, which maybe for people like yourself who takes that big picture approach to what's happening in Asia and China and so on, you can see that there's this shift. And what's interesting is that there's a whole sort of set of, you know, if I can sort of go back a little bit, news which is hitting our media, which, again, appears like random events. There's one example. We're talking about millennials in China. Mm. So I saw, I mean, recently, that there's a, a talent competition in China, which is a bit like American Idol or Australian Idol, or whatever it is mm. in each country. Um, but it's the former, isn't it? It's the pop idol thing. And yeah. Jesse J, who's a UK artist, went to China as a UK artist and won that competition and what I found fascinating about that story was that, you know, that to me said a lot of things, which I think was kind of missed by the media is that, okay, now what's happened is, is like a, 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 an international star has gone to China to seek some kind of recognition and commercially it's going to probably work out very well for her. She, uh, they reckon it's worth 30 million bucks to her, right? That over time. Yeah. Plus she's now going to be, you know, um, you know, having access to a new audience, a new audience of, you know, Chinese Absolutely. millennials, right? And what does mm. that then mean, for example, like with, you know, the shift in, in entertainment and Hollywood and so on, this, like, if you can imagine this, this 415 million people who have money and they're digitally engaged, now for music as an example, like if you were, an, let's say you're an Australian artist years ago, and you wanted to make it big, you'd probably go to London, mm. right? I mean, I think Kylie Minogue, as an example, she'd go to Absolutely. the UK, right? That, that's sort of yeah. her breakthrough. And then maybe, you know, UK artists would go to America. 
But, you know, are we going to see an era now where artists are going to go, okay, I'm going to go to China. That's the default where they could go to China and they could tour China and they could make a, a shit ton of cash doing that and build an audience. And they don't then have to think about the rest of the world. I'm just wondering at what point you think that will become a reality. Mm. Well, I mean, I think I think we're already seeing um, that take place. So, you know, there's a very large Australian YouTuber um, called Wenji, and she's now released an album um, in China. She, she's Chinese-Australian, um, and, you know, she didn't have to do that. She's very, very successful. She's got millions of followers on YouTube. Um, but, you know, in terms of um, activating a new audience, you know, if you've got the toolkit to be able to bridge both English and Mandarin-speaking audiences, why on earth wouldn't you? Mm. I mean, you know, to me, that it just seems like a no-brainer. And um, for those artists that aren't doing that, I would ask them, why not? Why aren't you doing that rather than why should you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the why should you is right there, you know. So, um, you know, Wenji has 11 million subscribers on YouTube. By Chinese social media terms, that's that's not a massive amount of followers when you think of a, you know, a 415 million simply just millennials, um, you know, who are part of that that pool. So, yeah, I mean, if I would be very surprised if we don't start seeing um, uh, our, our superstars really start to bed down mm. in the Chinese film industry, in the Chinese music industry and so on and so on. Um, because I think if you don't doing that, you're just putting a massive risk on your career. So Wenji, is she Australian? Was she Chinese? Yeah, she is. She's chi chi Chinese Australian. Right, right. So she's Australian citizen, but she cracked it yep. in China. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She's just decided to do that this year. Right. And what do you think that means to her commercially? Uh, lots and lots of money. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it means, obviously it means lots, lots of money um, in terms of just initial album sales, but then in terms of endorsements and actually being able right. to be that bridge, what she will find that she is able to do is to speak to global companies because she does have, you know, Australian accent, speaks English flawlessly, um, and she's a, she will be able to actually speak to multinationals and say, I can get you into China. I can mm. advocate for your brand in China. I can be a KOL um, or a key opinion leader, um, an influencer. And, you know, to take what she's already doing, um, her business model on YouTube, um, and, and just, you know, make that span, you know, a population which is one in five people on the planet and yeah. not just the English-speaking world. And is there an appetite for people like her in China? Um, there is. I mean, there's, you know, it's definitely seen as different. Um, if you're a, a China-born and bred um, key opinion leader or if you are um, international um, or if you are international and not of Chinese background but do speak Chinese, um, there's another great Australian influencer um, called David Gulasi who has 8 million followers um, on Weibo, speaks great Chinese, um, and he's just a bit of a clown, you know, on his Weibo, but, you know, he's getting great brand endorsements mm. um, as well just from being able to be that bridge. I imagine that... You know, by the time we see those students who are studying Chinese in mm. primary school, high school and university in 10, 20 years time, when they're entering their primary influencing years and primary spending years, um, that we will see, you know, that there will be hundreds of, of Chinese speaking foreigners um, who 
can have that influencer ranking. But right now, it's just a handful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's theirs for the taking. Yeah. And it takes that handful to pioneer and to de-risk it for everybody else, right? Because for most people, it's, still, it's still a risk, isn't it? Because there's still that narrative of, look, if you want to make it, I mean, if you're in entertainment, you want to make it, you've got to go to California or you've got to go to the major entertainment hubs in the world. That's the narrative that people have grown up with. But now I don't know, man. Like, yeah, I just I don't know if I've ever subscribed to that though, because my my you know being a, a country kid from you know working class background, like my my philosophy has always been I've got to play the outside game because right. I can't win when I'm playing the regular game. You know, I don't have the connections, or I, you know, I don't have the capital behind me, or I don't have a dad who can in just invest in my you know Beijing punk career. Right, right. So, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, how, so, so he's, playing the I mean, outside game, I think it's very important that outside game is, is fascinating isn't it because now you have an option for that outside game right because there's, there's a space isn't it which you've moved into and you've planted your flag and said look you know i know china but no before that you know before china was an option there wasn't an outside game for i mean if you grew up in the countryside of new south wales what was the mm. outside game for people like you there weren't many options were there no, there, there certainly wasn't. But happily, um, you know, we do see the rise of digital intersecting with yeah. the rise of China. And I can't think of a more interesting time, you know, to watch those two things reach a tipping point. So, you know, there's so much crossover that, that can be taking place right now. Um, yeah, I think any any person who's looking to, to fast track their career, just, you know, add China to whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and, you know, you will see that the business case is, is more than there. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career and talk about what it is that you do. So obviously mm, cool. you have, you know, your experience of China, you've studied as well. I mean, you've, I mean, Mandarin masters, you said twice, wasn't it? You've done two masters. I have, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously you're very well qualified in this matter and you spent a lot of time in China as well and you focus on millennials as well. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. What's the day job? Yeah, so the day job, I am the CEO and co-founder of the China Australia Millennial Project or CAMP as we, as we shorten that to. Um, and essentially what we do is we bridge the innovation ecosystems of China and Australia um, one of the ways we do that is by running an incubator program, which gets 50 Chinese and 50 Australians into a 100-day uh, learning program. Um, and we basically challenge them to build the next Uber, you know, to build the next Didi, to build a cross-border startup that is taking the best of China and the best of Australia, um, fusing those two economies together and creating something brand new. So, you know, you can sort of think about it like, you know, what if we got Jack Maher and Mark Zuckerberg at the age of 25, you know, got them uh, in, a, in a headspace together where they could collaborate, what would they come up with? So, mm. um, that, yeah, and we've just wrapped, like literally 48 hours ago, um, we've wrapped the third iteration of that. So that's 300 people that have come through the program um, so far. And i got to tell you, like, it is, it is fascinating to watch the sort of, you know, just the, the, the sort of strange take um, on these these sorts of big challenges, uh, you know, such as digital disruption or innovation in education um, that come through. It's really, really cool to see, mm. I guess, you know, diversity, power, innovation. 
Um, but we also do insights. You know, we have um, a survey in the market taking a look at Chinese millennials and their behavior in Australia and then being able to talk to corporates about um, how to better engage with that customer. We also do consulting, um, of course, as well, whenever we're asked to do it. Mm, okay. Tell us a little bit about what that's like when you bring together these these young people from different backgrounds, different countries, and you kind of throw them at a challenge. What, what sort of, what, what have you learned? What, what sort of challenged you in doing that process? Because I can imagine what people's sort of perceptions of that what might be. People are quite sort of, you know, out there. They have these crazy ideas. That's a sort of, you know, maybe perception or prejudice about, you know, young people and how they think, stereotypes, if you like. What's it like when mm, you actually mm. get these people together? Do they, do they sort of constantly challenge you in terms of your assumptions about young people today from these backgrounds? Um, yeah, I think they do because, you know, any any stereotype that you might hold in your head um, is, you know, only ever fractionally accurate. So um, with each cohort of 100 that we work with, um, you know, it's it's completely different. You know, the, it's the, each cohort is as different as the people inside of it. So um, it's always very interesting to understand the commonalities between these groups. Mm. Um, I think often when we talk about, you know, China and, you know, insert Western country, we, we instantly start to talk about difference. But what I notice is that, you know, there's a, a common sort of curious mindset when it comes to engaging globally. Um, there's a common um, language when it comes to engaging digitally. So, you know, the the issue of being able to form a friendship, form a bond, and then actually collaborate with somebody, even though you're not co-located or even, you know, within a thousand kilometers of each other, mm. um, it does, doesn't seem to be a hurdle. Um, the, the, thing that, <laughs> the thing that surprises me is like how strong the outputs are able to be while these guys go out partying as hard as they do. I have no idea where that comes right. from. I, have, I haven't had that sort of energy um, since my <laughs> late 20s. Right. But, um, it's good to be but, surrounded you know, by it though, right? Kind of. It is. No, it exactly. absolutely Raise is. Your game. You know, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I'm in my late 30s now and, you know, it does make me feel terribly old. when I'm like, wow, this is, you know, this is quite, quite spectacular. But I think what it is that they're doing is they're actually forming um, like uh, they're forming interpersonal bonds with each other. And those are much, much more difficult to break apart than a startup is. So, you know, what mm. we find in the program is that, you know, going back to that, that neuroscience background, we, we measure everything in this program. Um, we find that six months after the program has finished, um, 74% of the cohort have actually gained a career, um, a career promotion um, that they attribute to the network of camp. So they're actually attributing that back to the people that they've met and the skills that they've got um, and so on and so on. So, you know, these are really sort of upwardly mobile, interesting people, but they know how to bond with each other. And I think ultimately that's the, the major um, resource that you take away from something like camp. Interestingly, you said that you see the, the similarities in these situations, yeah. which I think is, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time in, in different cultures, which is great. We need more people who see the similarities. Do you see, I mean, what sort of tangible similarities do you see? Because I always hear, for example, when people say, talk about Asia, and you're talking about people who are outside of Asia, they always focus on the differences off the bat, right? That's yeah. natural in that conversation. Because media mm. tends to highlight differences as well. What do you see as similarities? Mm. 
Yeah, similarities, I would say, um, are sort of a, a social justice heart. You know, mm. people who have grown up millennial, and I'm sort of right on the border of that, you know, we have had the data to be able to see what mistakes have been made, right? Like we can see what happens when you just infinitely produce plastic and put it in the ocean. Right. <laughs> you know, we can see what happens when, when you know, you, you burn for fuel and, you know, what happens to the environment. We've actually got the data on that. And nobody wants to have held that data and make the same mistake anyway. Mm. So I think that sort of social responsibility piece um, is common across China and Australia. Um, obviously, just the propensity to, um, you know, not find it strange to to connect and bond with somebody um, online. Um, and, you know, a lot of a lot more people from my generation um, have travelled internationally than my parents' generation. And as I said, they, they still don't have passports. So... You know, in that sense, you're far more likely to know somebody who's been overseas or, you know, have interacted with somebody who is not from your hometown. Um, and so, I, I mean, honestly, I would think that I would have more in common with a Chinese millennial um, than I might have with my neighbor, yeah. you know, here in Sydney, right? So, you know, just sort of finding those um, those touch points you know, within this particular program, obviously it's a it's a competitive entry program. People have to apply to come into it, um, and so there's kind of a you know there's there's a camaraderie. I think people are are energized. They want to um, you know create big new ideas and and see if they can um, change the world. Yeah, but when you put them together in that situation, I mean, let's say you take a, a millennial Australian and a millennial Chinese and you put them together in groups. Let's talk about in groups as well, because things sure. like group identities come out a little bit as well. Is that it's do, true, yeah. do, do What do they tend to sort of take away from working with each other? Is it, I'm, I'm going to be stereotyped now and just sort of say, you know, my imagery would be, well, maybe the Chinese are a bit more entrepreneurial and the Australians are a bit more creative. It's a, it's a very sort of typical stereotype. <laughs> well, what's the reality when they, yeah. they work together? Yeah, um, I think what I notice is that the Australians often have um, difficulty in identifying what leadership looks like. Um, when they're in a team which is equally, you know, Chinese and and non-Chinese. So, you know, in Australia, we often, you know, the 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 sort of leadership that we get to see is, say, the loudest. You know, it's the it's the people that speak the most at the meeting, not necessarily mm. the people that have the best ideas. So, you know, and Australians, I would say, have a lower tolerance for silence on, say, a group call. So the Australians will tend to sort of barrel forward, you know, just ask, does anyone get that? Does anyone agree? Yep, great, okay, and just keep moving. Whereas um, what the more successful teams do is say, you know, here is the agenda, here is what we're looking to discuss in the meeting tomorrow. Let's field our ideas, mm. um, you know, into the agenda over this amount of time and then we'll discuss them in the meeting tomorrow. So just having had that sort of extra time to be able to put in those ideas um, tends to be, you know, it tends to allow the Chinese delegates um, to think before they speak, whereas I guess I would say that the Australians don't necessarily, they, they think while they speak. Right. Yeah, all the other yeah. way around, even maybe. But that's kind of yeah. that's natural, isn't it, for the English-speaking world, isn't it? We tend to sort of think we can, you know, cover up our mistakes, not cover them up, but be forgiven for our mistakes in a way. You know, if we say that's something, true. it's okay, it's fine. Good over. Yeah, it. that's true. We we also in Australia, I mean, we we absolutely mistake confidence for competence. Oh yeah. And so if you're there, just you know, speaking like a rock star, and you know, da da da, um, chances are, you know, perhaps your Chinese teammates might think you're you're full of hot air. 
but you're not really going to know about it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's take for example. Let's take if we had a team of ten Australians. They're all similar kind of backgrounds or similar ages. Ten Australians, ten Chinese, and then a team of ten mixed. So they would like five from China and five from Australia. Mm. And okay. just a very random, very academic, hypothetical experiment, we challenged each one of those teams to come up with a business idea, to implement the idea, and then to make money out of it. Mm. Who do you think out of those three conditions would be the most successful? Ooh, that's a tough one. So if, if everybody is, say, age 25 in that, um, in that scenario, I would no. say that the pure Chinese would take it out, at least in the first six months. So in that sense, um, the reason why I say that is because if you are 25 and in China right now, um, chances are you speak great English. Um, chances are you're able to um, really quickly tap into your own domestic market, um, which is obviously um, extremely large. Um, and you're, you have access to um, government incentives um, as well to be able to to you know kick you ahead on your entrepreneurial journey you can get you know grants from um, you know the the um, overseas talent um, organization in your particular city and um, and be able to get free office space or you know mm. free seed funding so on and so on so in that in that scenario I would still say that um, the Chinese would take it out um, secondly, um, the mixed group, and then lastly, the Australian group. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I find myself sort of going, oh, damn, why am I saying that? No. But the, the, the point of it, I think, is, is that the, 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 the future of Chinese innovation is cross-border. And so, you know, even when we see companies such as Alibaba Group, you know, spreading mm. their wings now, setting up, you know, we've got an office of, um, of Alibaba here in Australia. Um, it's open just in the last 18 months. Um, and Australia is the third largest market on Alibaba's um, Tmall and, and Tmall mm. Global platform. So, you know, we're a very, very big market for them. Um, there's still a struggle when it comes to um, convincing the, the Western side that yes, the opportunities in China are real. Yes, the, the barriers to entry such as geography or language or culture are surmountable. And that yes, you can add, you know, four extra zeros to your bottom line um, if you want to take this journey, but you need to have the, the, the bravery to do it. Mm. And so I think, you know, in the Australian side, what we struggle with is, you know, actually really thinking big, you know, thinking as big as possible. Um, whereas in China, you know, if you've grown up, if you've grown up in a, in a, a country which does have um, growth rates over ten percent, then you know you're, you're probably on a, a uh, you, you've, just, you've just got more momentum, mm. you know, than, than I feel that the Australians do. However, that said, what the Australians might be able to add is um, technical capability, which is you know there is a bit of a brain drain um, in China right now, which is why they're importing a lot of their innovation um, and supporting international startups to take root. Um, in China to set up Chinese offices. So, you know, if it was on, if it was a bunch of Chinese entrepreneurs and that team of far, of 10, and that's mixed, five Chinese entrepreneurs and um, five Australian technical experts, you know, say PhDs in, in this, that and the other, I would say that that is the team that would that's take it killer. out. That's the killer. Yeah, that's the future. Or, well, it's happening yeah. right here, right now, isn't it? Fascinating. Yeah, Andrew, that, amazing. Is that, what, what do you think about 
the mindset here? Because you've touched on it. You talked about bravery. And I'm mm. always fascinated by this. You know, you, you, you did a really good job of helping us understand what kind of advantages those young Chinese would have in terms of access to resources, access to markets, and so on. Now let's mm. talk about the, the mindset side of things, because this is huge, I think, that what... what mm. Is there a difference, you know, if you took those 25-year-olds, 10 Chinese and 10 Australians, I mean, again, sweeping generalizations, but there are generalizations when you, you, you deal with markets of such large numbers, right? You know, when you talk mm. about those young Chinese, do they think about entrepreneurialism differently? And I'm always sort of curious about this because there, there has for a long time, and it's changing now, but there has for a long time in many emerging markets, which China has sort of gone beyond, this idea mm. of like, you start a business because there isn't anything else. You start a business because mm. it's survival. You start a business because, you know, this is how your family eats. There is that type of entrepreneurialism you see in a lot of emerging markets. In China mm -hmm. now, what's going on? How are young people approaching entrepreneurialism? Is it sort of just a cool thing to do? Is it a bit sort of punk like those Beijing clubs? Or <laughs> is it now like the thing? Because, you know, Jack Ma, Pony Ma, et cetera, et cetera. And how yeah. is it different to Australians or anybody else in the world? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, and I think, you know, just the sort of underlying premise that I'll, I'll outline is that, you know, there is not one Chinese millennial, of course, um, and it really does differ according to um, geography and class and level of education and, you know, even gender plays into it and so on and so on. So, you know, there's there's quite a lot of um, personas, I guess, that you could point a stick at um, when it comes to, to Chinese millennials. But um, overall... Um, we used to see, you know, people who were in their 20s and 30s, you know, the ideal job in China mm. is what? To get a government job. You know, that is seen as the gravy train. You know, it's the most prestigious job, um, you know, very, very stable and your parents will be proud of you and so on and so on. That is shifting. So now, the, the you know, people want to work at Alibaba, to work at Tencent, you know, to work at Didi, like to actually work at these um, unbelievably... Um, in, like just these incredible e-commerce companies that are not only transforming China, but transforming the way the world sees China. Mm. Um, so, you know, in terms of that, that difference, I don't think that we're seeing quite yet, you know, uh, it would be a more rare parent that would say, yep, you know, pop straight out of high school, don't go to uni, just become an entrepreneur, <laughs> you know, and just, just run with it. Um, but, you know, the pathway to entrepreneurship is to learn, you know, it's it's very rare that you would um, be able to just, you know, have this in your blood and go out. You, It's a really great way to make a lot of mistakes. So even Jack Ma himself says, you know, if he was 20, what he would do is get himself around a, an entrepreneurial leader that he could learn from yeah. and then in his 30s actually start something up. So I, I and that's what I do think a lot of Chinese are doing right now, you know, very, very smart Chinese millennials, you know, will be entering into some of these incredible companies, Baidu, Tencent, so on, um, learning, soaking up as much as they can, um, and then popping out, you know, after after three to five years, and then creating yeah. something, you know, truly incredible. And that I, that knock-on effect, I think, will be world-transforming. You know, like if you've got that generation that's that's now skilled up and got the culture right, yeah, it will be very very different to Australia. Absolutely. I believe we, you know, one of the most powerful elements of all of this is the story, the stories that are being told. And they're now 
is or are a group of stories to which um, young Chinese can buy into as a, as a, a clear path for them. So they're looking at people like Jack Ma, yeah. and they're re- the, mm. you know before that it was you know if you were in business and you went to business school, ninety five percent of your stories would have been about middle aged white guys. You know, and yeah. that's what the media would, and guys as well, particularly. You know, that's what the 100%. media media would have portrayed. And so, if you weren't of that, you know, if you weren't middle aged, white, or a guy, it's like, okay, these are inspirational people, but at the end of the day, they're not you. So there was always no, that exactly. sort of, you know, yeah. that, that that barrier, wasn't it? But now, I mean, not just for Asians having their own role models, which I think is really powerful. There's also, I mean, interestingly, there seems to be, and I'm always fascinated to hear why people think this is the case. If we go to a place like China, there seems to be far more successful female entrepreneurs than anywhere else in the world, anecdotally. I mean, we look at the billionaires, and there's data on that, for example. So yeah, what, yeah. What is that? I mean, I know people have said to me, oh, you know, well, Chinese cultures like women hold up half the sky and stuff like that in all those kind of like tales that have been told to me is there must be something more than that because you know every country there you know even though female entrepreneurship is way behind in many countries you know they all have their Mm. examples of strong women or you know like people who have been in positions of leadership and so on but at the grassroots level it's lacking so what's going on at China Mm. it seems to be either anecdotally or maybe it's a sample bias, but there seems to be a lot more female entrepreneurs in mm. China than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, no, I, I would absolutely agree with that. But it's, it, to me, it seems like um, there are just more women in professions um, in China. And, you know, so, so for example, you know, every now and again, I'm asked to give a, um, you know, like a, a investment update um, to, you know, the big investment companies here um, in Australia. And, you know, I step into those rooms and it is 95% white old guys on a bad day, you know, like it mm. is, you know. And I apologize for being one of them, so... Are you old? Are you really yeah, that old? Exactly. Well, I'm the wrong side, of, <laughs> wrong side of 40, Andrea. So anyway. Oh, my God. That is, that's incredibly old. It's incredibly um, old. So, <laughs> no, but, I mean, these are, you know, all guys and individually fantastic people. You yeah. know, they, really smart. And they, they, come up, they, they come up to me at the end and say, you know, geez, that was fantastic. It's great to have a refreshing voice in the room and so on and so on and so on. But as an aggregate, um, it is very, very weird for me to set foot into a place like that, um, you know, which doesn't, which, which is just so um, one note. And the, the thing that I really try to make clear in those circumstances is that, guys, that is really strange. Like mm. if I go over to China and I'm doing a, a, a reciprocal event, it, it is at least 40% women. And it's the same with the co-working spaces, you know, the investment opportunities. You know, if I'm pitching to investors, chances are, you know, there's at least a couple of women on the panel. Um, whereas in, in Australia, most certainly, we know that 95% of our pool of capital goes to male-led startups, mm. which is why, you know, I mean, part, part of that is why I really enjoy running a bootstrap startup. Because yeah. I I like to run my own thing and I don't necessarily want to wrangle um, in a group which see me as less than, simply because of my gender. Yeah. So I think partially in terms of the root of that in China, um, a very easy one to point to is the one-child policy. Yeah. So if you have had, you know, if you think about um, that coming into play in 1979, and then you know it's really, you know, the the 
millennials coming of age right now who are in their late 30s to, to early 30s, you know, are the ones who are running investment companies, um, you know, who are starting out and really gaining speed in their startups and yeah. so on and so on. So if you have had um, one kid and she's female, you're not going to not throw everything you have behind her success. Mm. Um, you know, and so I think in, in that sort of circumstance, China can't, China can't afford to have the, the level of um, discrimination that we have. Of course, of course, it still does. You know, of course, there is a, a gender pay gap. It's, I think, 67% in China. In Australia, it's 73, I believe. Um, you know, like there, there still is that, um, that difference. And, the, you know, holding up half the sky business is, is it, it sounds very nice. Mm. Um, but I think the realities of it is that women still have all the pressure of family and the pressure of holding up half the sky, you know, mm. and supporting two parents and four grandparents. So, um, I, yeah, I think that, that women probably get more, um, more support, um, because, you know, you, you can't just be like, oh, well, she's a girl, let's not do anything. Right, right. You know, she's, she's, she's your, 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 um, meal ticket. But um, that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, significant, significant barriers. So any female CEO, I think, you know, just absolutely needs a, a round of applause for the success that they've got um, and the ongoing difficulty um, that doesn't stop once you are a success. Very good. I mean, that was probably one of the best explanations that I've heard for female entrepreneurship in China. And, you well, know, pretty yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. But I think, you know, you really nailed it because it's like, I mean, I'm a great believer that you know, if you look at societal shifts and especially like with female emancipation and so on, that often, you know, having power politically or socially usually follows economic power. So in a sense, what you've said is the same thing. It was just like, you know, the fact is, is because there are, you know, these are often only childs, then, mm. you know, they have had economic power. They have been in the workforce. They have, you know, it's not like they the parents had any choice like oh mm. we'll wait till the the firstborn son comes around and he'll run the business or he'll be the one yeah. we send to university or he'll be the one that we educate or we'll just marry yeah. off our daughter right so in that sense it's that's you know what you've said is really interesting because that's happened in china and therefore you know they've gone into the workplace and you know the fact that they are male or female is really secondary to the fact that they are the only child of the family right and therefore the mm. family's family's future and the families have mm. adapted likewise it's fascinating mm -hmm. i mean an absolutely fascinating walk through china and chinese millennials today andrea i mean you've done such a great job i've really enjoyed our conversation and i think mm, you know no, it's a pleasure yeah, I mean, wow, it's a real education and really enjoyed everything from Beijing punk clubs to everything else in, in China. I'm sure this, <laughs> we just scratched the surface, really, haven't we? That's yeah, no, we have. It's a really interesting space to watch. And I think it's only going to get more interesting in the next five years. So, yeah, um, yeah definitely keep an eye out. Well, you, you've, you've identified it yourself as well. The cross-border part is really, I think, the biggest growth story of this coming decade is that now that China has sort of, in a way, become a bit of a a more mature market, a lot of the capital oh, it, China now... China has risen, yeah, absolutely. The capital's yeah, it's coming not rising. out now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. We're now yeah. seeing that money and that expertise. And, you know, we're starting to see people like Jack Maher on the global stage. It means something. You know, now yes. we're going to see a lot of this. So, yeah, watch this space. Andrea Miles, everybody.
China it's a pleasure. Geek. Thank you yeah. so much for having me. Yeah, exactly. Chief instigator as well, as you call yourself. I love that title. So troublemaker. <laughs> Causing a ruckus. Exactly. China. And we're called disruptors these days. That's right. Exactly. We have a home. China, Australia, Millennial Project. Where do we find out more about you, Andrea? Yeah, so you can just head to australiachina.org um, or if you follow any hashtag China Geek, um, you should be able to find me across all platforms. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.